You're listening to El Clásico, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España from Barcelona to Madrid. Today we are at the Observatorio Astrofísico de Javalambre. Ramco, we asked you this morning about illness in the team. Uh, you said you felt fine. How did you feel on the road today? Yeah, not bad. Uh, I was feeling okay, just uh, couldn't uh, speed up uh, when the others went. I just had to hold my own pace and uh, in the end, on a, it was 30 seconds slower than uh, the fastest guys. So uh, I didn't feel like I was going really, really all out. I, it was more like a controlled effort, uh, but I just could not go over that limit. You just have uh, some days like that, and uh, today it was my turn uh, with not having the, the best legs. It looked as though you found your rhythm in the last two or three kilometers of the climb. Is that the case? Yeah, it was. I could actually speed up in the last 2K, so uh, it was a bit strange, just a bit of a, let's say, a bad moment. Uh, the race was really, really hard from the gun on, so uh, I think I just, yeah, just needed to find my own rhythm, uh, kind of settle myself a bit, and. Uh, yeah, the good thing is I could speed up in the last 2K. Still had something left in uh, the last 500 meters as well. But I mean, uh, like I said, it's uh, if this was a bad day, then it's uh, it's okay. You are listening to El Clásico. My name is Daniel Freiber and I'm the host of this episode. I am adjacent to the Observatorio Astrofisico del Javalambre, where this afternoon we saw some stars wax others wane and the planets align for Lenny Martinez and well Sepp Kuss and a few others um, joining me to review the action on the second highly dramatic mountain stage of the 2023 Vuelta a España is our own anti-Nostradamus of not Watford Lionel Burney. Lionel we heard there from Remco Avenepoel um, on the top of the show tonight and in many ways as much the story of the day as Lenny Martinez and Sepp Kuss indeed. Very much so, very much so. Remco Evenepoel got his wish, didn't he? Wanting to give away the red jersey as race leader and with it the responsibility for his Sudal Quickstep team to control the race in the coming days. But uh, perhaps got a little bit out of hand for him. What well, didn't quite go to plan, perhaps. Yeah, slightly cryptic as well. Well, cryptic or um, inscrutable, that interview um, at the finish line. Some will smell a rat or smell the beginnings of an illness. I mean, we've been talking about this illness that's been going around. We heard from James Knox last night about how he'd not been feeling great. Um, sort of quiz Remco about it, um, about the illness in his team at the start this morning. We'll hear it maybe um, that a bit later on. Um, Lionel, we're going to have the tale of the tapper to recap a humdinger of a stage um, in just a minute. But I'm, I'm in a humdinger of a setting because as I said I'm just um, sitting on a rock in fact um, on top of the mountain the Pico del Butre and I'm looking out over the province of uh, Teruel and this is what they call empty Spain um, La España La España Vacía and um, Lionel we've had a few over the years um, we've, we've touched on this a few times haven't we places that are reputed not to exist uh, Teruel the province of uh, Teruel, which is rather large, um, is reputed not to exist. Um, so much so that there was a political party set up a couple of years ago to prove that it did exist. Um, and I can confirm that it does exist. So we're myth-busting. It, myth it is, myth busting. 
on the cycling podcast. It is extraordinary up there, isn't it? You can see literally for miles, can't you? That's that's my memory of being up at Havalambre. And uh, the last time the Vuelta was there in, well, when was that? 2019? 2019, was it? 2019. Yeah, yeah. And remarkably good mobile phone signal, um, which we're relying on for the recording of this podcast. Um, but it is, yeah. Well, given, given that they've got an observatory up there to spot, you know, look at the stars, uh, I guess Spain keeping an eye out for a, any kind of alien invasion. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what precisely they get up to at the observatory up there but you would expect it to be reasonably well connected uh there were a lot of police around uh today more than usual looking more sort of nervous than usual more watchful than usual around the this big dome that there is up here and um yeah it was almost as though they were expecting an alien invasion and um, speaking of alien invasions i'm just looking up there now at the big sort of telescope or whatever it is under housed in that zo- that dome and just seen sep kuss who's finished his um, stage winner's duties riding sort of past I've just seen his silhouette um, against the backdrop of the big telescope sort of a la E.T. Um, a la not E.T. <laughs> did E.T. ride the bike or was it E.T.'s? No E.T. sat in the basket oh. Elliot rode the bike Elliot rode the and, bike and uh, is, is Sepkus on his Jumbo Visma bike or is he on a BMX? I don't think it's got a basket That's on a it question. I don't think it's got a basket on it um, Lionel <laughs> he's got Rog he's got Rog in the basket at the front has <laughs> <Yeah>. he? <laughs> we will enjoy huh? we will enjoy um, yeah some cracking <laughs> some classic um, roglicisms after the stage today as we'll hear in just a while um, Lionel should we hear what happened in this uh, as I say quite difficult um, indecipherable stage at times but in the end uh, it, it, well the outcome was relatively predictable given who was in the the two groups but um, you're going to tell us about that so it's time for the tale of the etapa El resumen de la etapa the tale of the etapa. Lionel, off you go. Well, that's right, Daniel. Stage six to the observatory at Havalambre, and the first big uphill finish of this year's welter. No, not the first big uphill finish. My first big uphill finish, because of course I, I boycotted Andorra. Doesn't count. Andorra doesn't count. Um, of course, it does count for the GC, but uh, in, in my head, it doesn't. Uh, but it was another engagement with the mountains, and we were really anticipating a break to go, uh, not least because certain riders yesterday were sort of seemingly losing time deliberately in order to uh, get into the break, perhaps. But in the end, it was uh, quite a chaotic uh, stage that really sorted itself out in quite formulaic fashion at the end we didn't really see exactly how the break was established because that wasn't broadcast on tv but there were 42 riders who eventually got into the big break of the day including critically four riders from jumbo visma including the stage winner sep kurs but he was accompanied by jan tratnik attila valter and dylan van bala i mean there were so many big names in that break and so many riders close to Remco Evenepoel on the GC. I think I counted, how many was it? Two, four, six, eight, ten, eleven riders within two minutes of Evenepoel on GC. So it really was packed with dangerous riders, packed with firepower, and when they got into the bottom of the climb, still with a healthy advantage, it was clear they were going to fight out the stage for themselves. But then on the climb itself, I remember the the approach to it at the bottom, really very difficult, and it kind of started sorting itself out from that point 
and really the stage shook down from around four kilometers to go when Movistar's Ina Rubio attacked. He got away and was briefly being chased by Roman Bardet, Lenny Martinez and Sepp Kuss. They were the uh, chief riders to react. And more or less at exactly the same time as that, further down the mountain, Primoz Roglic of Jumbo Visma made a big move and there was no reply from Remco Evenepoel at that point. So really a double whammy for Jumbo Visma today because Sepp Kuss found himself clear by himself with two kilometres to go to win the second welter stage of his career. And behind Lenny Martinez, 20 years old, born on July the 11th, 2003, which Daniel, you'll remember well, was the day Alessandro Pataki won the Tour de France stage in Lyon. And Victor Hugo Pena was in the yellow jersey. Uh, it feels like yesterday to me, that does. Uh, but that was the day Lenny Martinez was born. He finished second on the stage and took the red jersey. I should, if I call out quite loudly, I could perhaps ask Victor Hugo Pena if he's aware of this because he's recording his, I don't know whether it's a podcast he's doing at the moment or evening show on a different rock about 50 metres from me. Um, we said we'd have him on the podcast one day soon to talk about Colombian cycling, but maybe um, I'll ask him if he's aware of that that nifty piece of trivia. Um, Lionel, a couple of DNFs, when the, the, the J Vine one, mm. the J Vine one was, well, it was a, a heart-wrenching one really. Um, he was in a lot of pain, wasn't he? Um, he was blooded, and I don't know whether it seemed that the race doctor and maybe his director sportif were trying to sort of manipulate. I think it was his right arm, and he was obviously in a lot of pain mm. and also in tears. Yeah, a real blow for Jay Vine and for the UAE team Emirates team as well. Sudal Quickstep lost a key rider, Andrea Bagioli, uh, and with the rumours of the illness sweeping through their camp. I mean, echoes of the, the Giro, really, isn't they're approaching the first rest day and, and Remco getting the sniffles potentially again. I don't want to write him off too soon. Uh, we also lost from the race Lorenzo Milesi, who was the first red jersey after Team DSM won the opening team time trial. Uh, just to kind of wrap up exactly what all that meant on GC, Lenny Martinez, as I said, in the red jersey, but only by eight seconds from Sepp Kuss. Kuss now, though, is two minutes 41 ahead of Remco Evenepoel. Um... Mark Soler is third overall, 51 seconds behind Martinez. The riders from fourth to eighth were all from the break. And then I guess the kind of the, 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 the real GC, if you like, Remco is still just ahead of the other key riders. So although he probably won't consider today uh, a, a huge success, he is still ahead of Mass, five seconds ahead of Jonas Vingegaard and nine seconds ahead of Primus Roglic. So, I mean, the Vuelta really is bubbling away very, very nicely. And as a race, it was uh, very entertaining to watch. Is that the real GC, Lionel? Interesting that you are not considering Sepkus as being part of the real GC. I would tend to agree with you, but that's quite a, that's a healthy margin that he has over um, Remco Evenepoel and it's making Primoz Roglic's sort of offhand comment and um, all of Primoz Roglic's comments are pretty offhand aren't they but his comment about Sepkus maybe winning the Vuelta that was way back at the start of the Vuelta in Barcelona it's looking maybe prophetic 
to some to Ooh. some degree. Are we gonna are we gonna tackle this point now or are we we'll gonna tackle it tackle we'll tackle it later. In. in the meantime, should we hear should we hear some roglitch, some roglicisms um at the finish. I was there um among colleagues, um our Eurosport colleagues, Sander managed to trap, managed to lasso Primoz Roglic and Jonas Vingegaard together. So we're gonna hear from them. And we're also going to hear from Jan Tratnik, uh, Primoz Roglic's compatriot, great friend, who was one of those riders who were very instrumental in dragging the breakout, dragging Sepkus out to within striking distance of the stage win that he duly took. Yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a start of, uh, of the mountains. And uh, yeah, for sure, I mean, today I had, uh, I had a bit better legs. Uh, but yeah, long way to go, huh? But okay. good day, huh? We will enjoy it. We don't complain, huh? And well, we won, we take time, more you cannot wish, huh? Yes. Jonas, are you, are you complaining today about this stage? I guess not, huh? Oh, no, I think it was a good stage. Uh, we did super well today. In the start, the boys were amazing. We put pressure on Quickstep and uh, turned out perfectly for us today. This morning, uh, you were not really certain how the legs were. Oh. At hindsight, right now, you could say... Then I take, I go It was quite okay. Uh, at least better than previous days uh, yeah I've been suffering a bit in the start so uh, yeah luckily I, I found the legs again of course really good for the GC but how happy are you guys also for the stage win of your true assistant Sepkus yeah he's an amazing guy and he really deserves it is he in the red jersey as well or I don't think so no no oh, that's a shame no, just not he would have deserved it but uh, yeah <laughs> the stage win is also amazing so yeah Oh yeah, today we we all knew that it would be a really big battle for breakaway. Um, so I really, we really focus on that. But yeah, in the end, when you see such a such a huge group, we yeah we need to respond with um, many guys as possible. So for us it was perfect, and yeah the. Our two leaders can uh, just be calm in the peloton, and yeah, in the front we really give everything for Seb because we knew that he's yeah, one of the strongest climbers. So yeah, with Dylan, <laughs> we did everything to come uh, in the bottom of climb with yeah, huge advantage. Jan, were you thinking about the jersey with Seb, or was it just the stage win that was in your thoughts? Uh, he has also jersey. No, he doesn't. Ah, he came came very close. Ah. Uh, I don't know. Um, today we focus on stage win. Um, so yeah, um, now we see. Um, we will enjoy in stage win, and then yeah, we see what will come. I knew that Primoz is strong. He had, uh, we had um, perfect preparation with altitude, and then Burgos, and uh, yeah, I think for him was really good preparation after Giro. Yeah, he took some rest, and then uh, really slowly building up towards Vuelta and yeah with Burgos I think was just yeah, some uh, kilometers to put rhythm in the legs and yeah I think now it works perfectly. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Well, Lionel, uh, that was the the Jumbo Visma Troika of Roglic, 
Vingegaard and Tratnik. I noticed that Primoz Roglic's family, they were, um, they arrived today and they were up on the mountain enjoying themselves. Little Lev, I think Lev is the name of Primoz Roglic's son. Um, he was in, enjoying the, well, mainly throwing rocks up here. Unfortunately, fortunately, everyone, everyone stayed well out of the way of these flying projectiles. Um, Children love uh, throwing rocks. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's my input on that. Yeah, but a lot to celebrate um, in the Jumbo Visma camp tonight. Unfortunately, the, the team cars were a little bit too far down the mountain for me to be able to catch up with the direct sportifs and to, well, to hear how much of today was a plan and how much of it was improvised. I mean, I, I suspect that the outcome, well, it, it was beyond their wildest hopes and expectations um, of the day. I, I don't really know how much they scented blood early in the stage line, or maybe you can clear this up for me. Um, there was a point in the day, certainly on Pro Cycling Stats, maybe in a couple of other websites, certainly on Twitter, I think, it was sort of being suggested that Remco Avenepoel had been distanced, not only from, obviously, there was a break down the road, but he'd been distanced from the main peloton. Now, when we were sort of putting this to people at the finish line, they were giving us blank looks to suggest that that had just been, there'd been some mis communication there do you know anything about that yeah he didn't look great did he when Roglic first made the move and you would expect a rider in the red jersey to react immediately um when Roglic is sort of trying to well he he just went straight away didn't he and but maybe this is the, the new mature Remco um in the sense that you know he sat tight he regrouped uh, he kind of didn't panic. I mean, he didn't have anyone to really sort of help out. So he had to uh, play it very safe. And actually, when he got to the line and assesses the damage in terms of the time lost, will probably be pretty um, satisfied that it wasn't a, a great deal worse. It, the, the question will be, um, you know, the next time that there's a, a, a big uh, acceleration on the climb, whether he's got the legs to go. Uh, I wouldn't have thought it would be panic stations just yet simply because the response actually was pretty you know controlled and he managed to contain uh, the damage pretty well so yeah it could have been an awful lot worse for him but it did really highlight you know notwithstanding the um you know the the, the illness going through the team but he really is isolated and none more so than when you look at the the just insane strength of Jumbo Visma I mean strong enough to put four riders in the break in the first place and leave the two protected riders Roglic and Vingegaard you know more or less uh, well they'd have a rider each of course in the event of of emergencies but uh, Jumbo Visma are able to kind of you know it's total cycling from the from the Dutch team at the moment isn't it really Lionel, do you think they would have liked to put Sepp Kuss into the red jersey beyond, I mean, we heard Jonas Vingard talking about what a great guy Sepp is, and I'm sure, you know, as a sort of gesture, as a reward for everything he's done for this team, everything he's done this year, this is his third Grand Tour, don't forget, and he's, well, he's played a key role in them winning the previous two, um, but uh, besides that, uh, in thinking about the race situation, um, will they be quite happy that Lenny Martinez has taken red and not them? It's a tricky one, that isn't it? Because this, the the fact that Remco Emdepool presumably didn't want the red jersey doesn't necessarily mean that Jumbo Visma would have turned it down or, or or would have been disappointed. I'm sure Sepkus personally would love a few days in the red jersey. I don't think it would change too much for Jumbo Visma because they are kind of the uh, well, they're the 
they're the strongest team in the race and so they will they will have to ride as if they are defending a, a virtual red jersey anyway really I, 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 um the big question is whether this really genuinely makes Sepp Kusa a, a potential winner of the Vuelta and of course looking at the time gaps you know why not he's certainly in the picture but just a sort of note of caution uh, his best Grand Tour result is eighth in the 2021 Vuelta, where he's 18 minutes 55 behind Roglic. You have to caveat all of that with the fact that he's never ridden a Grand Tour with his own ambitions as his biggest priority. And you have to imagine that at some point that gap uh, is going to close up, but purely because of the time trial, you would think. Um, So I think... Tuesday when the race resumes after the rest day and we see how everyone uh, sits after the time trial I think that will give us a much clearer idea uh, and a clearer answer to that question what do you think uh, no, I know I don't think he's a threat um, for a couple of reasons one I think that with two nominal notional GC leaders in Roglic and uh, Jonas Vingegaard they'll be spread a little bit thinly um, in spite of you know the strength that they have here an incredible team they've got um, Wilco Kelderman's already crashed a couple of times so he may be ailing for a while longer so Sepkus is going to be really important he also I know spoke to my colleague Andy Hood our colleague this morning and admitted that he's tired um, which alarmed me slightly um, six days into the Vuelta a España I know that his well his whole season really this year has has consisted of Grand Tours and he's been able to rest in between them but um, I, I was slightly worried when I heard that worried on, on his behalf he's still riding brilliantly but I don't think he's got it in him um, to to mount a real GC challenge and as I say I think he's going to be needed because also uh, there are going to be a lot of attacks there's going to be a lot of pressure put on Jumbo Visma you know it's not as though they're fighting one single opponent Enric Mas is also still very much in the shake-up Juan Ayuso is and I can't see either of those two guys or some of the other dropping away anytime soon so I think they're going to need uh, Sepkus in, as, as a sort of defensive screen um, at some point in the race I think that, that they may find themselves in, in the perfect scenario or in the perfect situation in that Sepkus has got a good opportunity to take the red jersey for one day um, and it's a nice day to have it it's the rest day and then the time trial um, on Sunday's mountain stage the summit finish um, Lenny Martinez it won't be easy to drop him and maybe Sepp Kuz will be called upon to do sort of donkey work that day which might jeopardise his chances of taking the red jersey but that is a possibility it is a possibility Saturday though is not it's not exactly Sepp Kuz type territory is it? it's, it's punchy it's real ripe for roglification could be very aggressive um he's got to survive that one first but yeah as you say you know he's kind of the 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 advanced forces isn't he he's he's a good chunk of time ahead of everybody else and he's there giving both Roglic and Vingegaard kind of the license to sort of inch their way up to him um and it will just be really fascinating to watch how Jumbo Visma play that because they won't want to sort of drag lots of other riders up into contention while they have Sepkus so well placed. So it might well be that Saturday and Sunday stages are a little bit sort of tentative, don't want to make too many, um, you know, big moves, and then see what happens in the time trials, see the extent of Sepkus's losses, and kind of treat uh, the Vuelta as kind of starting again after the time trial. 
Lionel, we should really talk about Lenny Martinez. Uh, yeah, Lenny Martinez, Francois talked about him when we were at the Grand Prix La Marseillaise back in January, the end of January, when Martinez was eighth in that race. And having seen the race up close, uh, you know, real kind of gnarly finish, uh, narrow roads and steep climbs and, uh, you know, descending, uh, he'll probably be okay on Saturday, I would have thought. Um, but yes, he has taken the red jersey. He is the son of uh, Miguel Martinez, French former world and Olympic mountain bike cross champ, cross country champion and grandson of Mariano Martinez, who won the King of the Mountains in the 1978 Tour de France. And well, he must love places with observatories because he won the one day race on Mont Ventoux just ahead of Mike Woods. Uh, in June so perhaps it's something to do with observatories because he's taken the red jersey in sight of the observatory there at Havalambre but clearly a very big talent a climbing talent I mean his under 23 results would have all been earned as a teenager Um, so yeah he is breaking through and one I think you describe them as a gaggle of young talented riders in group armor FDJ but uh, my image is of a Lenny Martinez goose kind of basically sort of muscling his way to the front of this gaggle of other group armor geese and uh, certainly making the loudest noise at the moment geese make a lot of noise and martinez made a lot of noise today i'll take your word for it Lionel. um as you said the son of uh, miguel martinez who is an extraordinary character i'm i'm gonna i'll tell a few stories about about miguel martinez tomorrow um, which will make you realise well how extraordinary it is that Lenny Martinez has has ended up as well adjusted as he appears to be. Um, Miguel Martinez' extraordinary career careers because he was a mountain biker and a road rider and life um, thereafter as well. So there's all sorts in there, Lionel. Um, yeah, it's a bl- real blockbuster of a, of a life story. Um, Did you not at one point as well also say that he was going to win Paris-Roubaix, Miguel Martinez, after winning the... Uh, that would have been... probably the Olympic he, mountain bike. Yeah, so that a would... memory of that. That would have been in character. Miguel Martinez, whose physical stature makes Kenny Elisande look like, I don't know, <laughs> um, Fabian Cancellara. Um, Lionel, not the only young rider who was very much to the fore today on the, or here at Havalambre. Uh, Juan Ayuso, well, he, well, we expect him to be at the pointy end of the GC battle, don't we? And he was. Um, he is still very much in the shake-up to win this Vuelta España. And also, flying... S- slightly under the radar of the um, Observatorio Astrofisico was Kian Uterbrooks. Kian unpronounceable. Um, actually, it's not that difficult to pronounce, is it? It just looks as though it's going to be unpronounceable. Once you get, get the hang of it, it's okay. Uh, the young Belgian rider for Bora Hansgrohe riding his first major tour and, well, riding extremely well. He finished 22nd today, um, which is deceptive because he was actually very close to Primoz Roglic, Jonas Vingegaard. Uh, he finished with Joao Almeida and just a few seconds behind Ayuso, in fact. And, well, on GC, Uterbrooks now lies in 15th place. Again, only 20 or so seconds behind Primoz Roglic. Um, Lionel, we've spoken about him before on the podcast. You mentioned the other day our um, our late great friend Richard Moore's interview with Kian Uterbrooks. That was the subject. Was it kilometre zero? 
um, it exists on the internet, doesn't it? No, it was, it, was, it was the opening episode of our 2022 season. He'd been to see Utgebrips in Belgium at his home and some, sometime before Christmas. And uh, yeah, we kick-started the year with, uh, with a young rider to watch. And I mean, this is definitely the first time that lots of people will get to see him. And as the race kind of shakes down, it will be... Well, it's going to be very interesting to see how long he can kind of stick in that uh, company with the likes of Roglic and Vingegaard and uh, Ayuso, I guess, and Evenepoel. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? Looking at the GC and just seeing uh, all of that talent stacked up. There's a kind of virtual GC which starts at ninth place. And, uh, well, I guess it's kind of as you were this morning in a lot of ways. Um, but shaping up, yeah, to be fantastic over the next couple of weeks. Yes, Lionel, and we'll be hearing more definitely about Kian Utebrooks, and we'll be hearing from him in the next few days. I'll catch up with him at the start, um, maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow, and you'll hear that in tomorrow's podcast. But I thought it'd be useful to provide a bit more context about Kian Utebrooks and his Vuelta a España, his first major tour, and what he's hoping for, what his team are hoping for. And to that end, the subject of today's Encuentro del Día, meeting of the day, is Rolf Aldag, the Bora Hansgrohe at Direct Sportive, kind of um, in charge of sort of talent development there as well. He's followed Kian Utebrooks' young pro career very closely. And I spoke to Rolf this morning at the start. El Encuentro del Día, the meeting of the day. Uh, it's a lot about learning, obviously, and it's also about, like, you know, the world is the uh, last grand tour of the year. So literally, even if you're on your knees um, getting out of it, you have a lot of time to recover. While if you do first grand tour in the Giro, there's a still a long, you know, long end of the season. So, you know, like that is kind of like much lower risk for us. So it's like he's super, super young. So, you know, we can we can go all in. But he doesn't have to think about like what comes in June, July, uh, August, September, October. This is kind of like when this is done, and I can go into the winter break. You know, we can we can uh, kind of like analyze how everything went and then move on with 2024. Um, that is the beauty of, of doing the Vuelta. Obviously, also you know there's a lot of climbing here, like more climbing than in any other stage race, which uh, suits him really well. And um, he has a strong leader with Alexander Vlasov that he doesn't get the whole pressure at the first grantor that he's going to do with a lot of expectation. We all know Belgium is an absolutely, you know, cycling country, enthusiastic people, but also people who put the bar really, really high um, on, you know, young athletes like, you know, with Remco, but also with Kia. And then just like, well, yeah, at that age, he could, you know, Remco could not do 6.4 watts KG. So Kian is better than Remco. So what can he do? All of that stuff that you do read, of course, it's not meant in a bad way, um, you know, from fans, from, from Belgium media, from everybody, but it just creates pressure. And therefore, I think it's nice to have him here, you know, in a kind of like co-leader role. We say, well, he does get his chance. He will be protected. He's here to learn. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's mainly the expectation. So whatever the outcome will be, um, if he gets through the whole Vuelta, that would be already a success. We know him a bit now as a rider and his characteristics. What do you see as his strengths as a, as a personality? And, um, you know, what characteristics does he have that will help him to thrive in this sport? Well, I think he's a role model of modern cycling uh, in the sense of, like, being professional. So it looks like 
it's not a burden for him to measure the weight of the pasta. It's not a burden for him to check his heart rate in the morning, to do all kind of like stuff that, you know, you think is ideal to do. On many people, you feel like, you know, they do it because they must do it. And for him, you feel like he's doing it because it gives him safety, security, it makes him feel better. And I do think, you know, that's, that's a huge difference to a lot of other riders who kind of like do it with resistance why do i have to check my body weight i don't you know like otherwise i will be judged like too heavy too too he's doing it because he wants to do it and he's a guy who wants to have a plan and not just going into anything so into any day of his life without a plan it's a bit of a generational thing isn't it um your generation was quite different i think yeah there was no need for it and i enjoyed it pretty much to say to have that freedom to say well you know what like never had a training my, a trainer my whole life a coach yeah you know i do what i what i think is right and like i like to ride my bike and that's it and then i get my shape out of racing which is yeah completely impossible now it is a different generation but you know some of the people are not fitting into that system but they're still very talented i think with kian he's very talented and he fits into that system and, uh, and then we will see, you know, at that young age, it's just super hard to predict. So I'm, you know, I'm not a fan of like, yeah, yeah, in three years, he's going to win the Tour, the Vuelta, the Giro, whatever. We all don't know, but it's it's a process. It's a way of working. And uh, and I do think he's, that's why I say like he's a role model of modern cycling. Okay, but will he win the Vuelta? <laughs> I don't know. We will see. I doubt that he will win the Vuelta in 2023. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Well, I know that was a very interesting Rolf Aldag. Rolf Aldag, always um, intriguing to get his thoughts about pretty much any subject. And yes, on Kian Uterbrooks. Well, I've now returned to the press room, come down the mountain and have discovered since we spoke last um, that Kian Uterbrooks' performance today was even more impressive than we realised because he was caught up in a crash early on the stage and... Well, he talked after the stage about having to make up a lot of positions. He also said he didn't feel great. And in spite of that, well, as we said earlier, finished hot on the heels of Rog, Ving the Merciless and various others. So, um, yeah, bodes well, promises very well, doesn't it? It does indeed. I mean, he is last year's Tour de l'Avenir winner, of course. And when you look at his stage race results this season, a very impressive debut season in the World Tour, ninth in the Tour of Oman, ninth in Catalonia, sixth in the Tour of Romandy, uh, seventh in the Tour de Suisse, and now doing his first Grand Tour. And I'm not surprised they're hopeful and uh, have high expectations but the key will be just to kind of if he does have a bad day here or there um just to emphasize uh, his age i mean he's 20 as well he was only 20 in february uh so yeah at his age he doesn't have any pressure on his shoulders at all but of course there will probably be some kind of comparison with Evanapool, um depending on how they both get on in this Vuelta and something for our Belgian colleagues to get excited about if Remco's challenge does kind of unravel a bit over the rest of the race. Lionel, speaking of youth, um, 
I was going to ask you, I was poised to ask you earlier, um, whether you've seen anything to the effect that Lenny Martinez is the youngest ever, I don't know, Vuelta leader, um, wearer of a Grand Tour leader's jersey. I've seen people on social media as I've come down the mountain with very intermittent, patchy internet connection. People have referred to this, but there's some kind of caveat or asterisk. Um, I don't quite know what it's about. Do you? I don't, I'm afraid. I mean, he's not going to be the youngest... Uh, to lead a grand tour is he because wasn't there a 19 year old uh, or 20 year old wasn't Henri Cornet in 1904 the 1904 Tour de France winner very young bound to have been some French chap with a curly moustache about 100 years ago um, that, that was my suspicion that was my <laughs> suspicion um, Lionel at the other end of the I don't wish to sound unkind um, or impertinent with this but at the other end of the age scale um Geraint Thomas is a, more of a veteran of Grand Tours, whilst as Espana. I spoke to him this morning, actually, and asked him what he was hoping for, what he was expecting from today. And he was a bit mystified as to his performance at Arinsal. He just said uh, he couldn't really get out everything that he felt that he maybe had in his legs before the Vuelta. It was a bit of a strange one and similar today, wasn't it? Um, well, it looks as though he had a similar day today. Um, he came in pretty well down on even Remco Evenepoel, about a minute down on Remco Evenepoel, and it's not going particularly well so far, is it, for Geraint Thomas? It isn't, no. And, well, he's a steady type of Grand Tour rider, isn't he? He needs to be in a good position and, and stay there. So it will be interesting to see how Ineos Grenadiers kind of recalibrate. Uh, they've obviously got Filippo Ganna in great form, judging by his sprint finish. Um, so they may well win the time trial on Tuesday, looking a little bit further ahead. Uh, but yeah, I don't think Geraint Thomas is going to repeat the heroics from the Giro d'Italia earlier this year, is he? Um, but should just uh, mention a few people who have jumped up the GC as a result of being in that break today. Uh, I kind of wrote off Hugh Carthy a little bit because of the time that he had leaked, but he's jumped all the way back up to 13th place overall after gaining time. But the other one, Mikel Lander. I mean, Mikel Lander is such an enigma, isn't he? He's obviously leaving Bahrain victorious at the end of the season, but he got himself into that break with uh, Wout Poles and Santiago Buitrago. Very solid ride by Bahrain victorious today to get them all in there. Didn't manage to pull off the stage win, but have managed to catapult Lander back up to a pretty healthy-looking sixth place, a minute ahead of Primoz Roglic. I feel as though more and more riders are doing this in Grand Tours. We used to refer to it as riding a la Atapuma after the legendary, mythical Darwin Atapuma BMC climber, who maybe, I think it was it was something we sort of extrapolated um, way beyond its sort of reasonable or reasonable dimensions. I think he did it once. Yeah, that, uh, I think sort of Guillaume, Guillaume Martin on the Guillaume Martin bungee road. Yes. He's, he's the one. He'd be second one night and then 33rd and then backed up to sixth. You know, that kind of... Uh, yo-yoing on GC it can be quite effective can't it? I, it I suppose the question remains it's a bit like stage wins when uh, Grand Tour nominal sort of Grand Tour leaders they fall out of general classification and then they go on to take mountain stage victories and uh, I always feel unkind saying this but sometimes those victories can feel a bit soft uh, Richard Carapaz's wins at the Vuelta Espana last year when he'd gone into the race having sort of declared that you know he wanted to win it 
and then picking up a couple of, did he win two or three mountain stage wins last year? It didn't have quite the same sweet flavor that, uh, that a mountain stage win a la pedal, as the French would say, does. Yeah, but it, Lionel, it's becoming increasingly difficult, isn't it, to win stages and be in contention at the same time, unless, uh, well, I mean, even in, in you know, well, Jonas Vingegaard only won one uh, road stage of the Tour de France, didn't he? It, it is difficult because the way the race is sort of, is less predictable it feels i mean today was almost like a last week of the vuelta stage where as you say all of those riders you know Sepkus, mark soler walt poles Mikko lander david de la cruz and so on you know you, you could have imagined them all being sort of 18 minutes down overall and, and being allowed to get into a break that gains six minutes uh, but the difference was this has happened at an early stage of the race when the gc hasn't completely sorted itself out Lot far from it. I think it's become more and more difficult, Lionel, as Grand Tours have become closer and that has put a premium on bonus seconds and we've had certain teams and certain riders really tailoring their tactics to reflect that and to, well, to hopefully bring them bonus seconds. I mean, I'm thinking about Tadej Pogacar, Primoz Roglic. I think Remco Evenepoel is now going to be in that category as well because he's sprinting so well. If you're a GC rider who is not fast then it's going to be very difficult for you to win stages. I've spoken to Simon Yates a couple of times about this this year. That it's, it's frustrating, particularly for a rider like Yates, who at one point was renowned as quite a fast finishing climber. But if you're up against Pogacar, Roglic, or you know, even a Paul and a couple of others, then as you say, your chances of taking stage wins um, are pretty slim. Lionel... It's can I just can I just make just mention one final Belgian because we've talked a lot about Evenepoel and Utgebrooks, but actually the best placed Belgian on GC tonight is Steph Kras of Total Energies and a rider who's been a long way under the radar. I don't think the observatory up there at Havelambrate would have picked him up either. But you know, a pedigree as a young rider, he. Uh, was uh, fifth in an edition of the Tour de l'Avenir before turning professional and came out of the BMC development team, rode a couple of years at Katusha and then three years at Lotto Sudal before joining Total Energies at the start of this year and is a decent climber. I'm not suggesting he's going to um, threaten for the podium, uh, but he is. Uh, he did very well to get in that break today and uh, jump his way up the GC into... Currently, fifth place overall. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. Lionel, yesterday's dinner was eaten on the beachfront in Castellón and it was pretty memorable, I must say. Um, we were warned. I was um, dining with our American colleagues, Gregor Brown and Andy Hurt, and we were warned by the waiter that we'd ordered way too much food. Um, and what proceeded to arrive was, well, it, it was a few tippy-tappy canapes. And uh, so I went home on what I felt was pretty much an empty stomach. And that stomach was growling when I woke up this morning. So I felt very much short-changed last night, Lionel. We're hoping to rectify that tonight. Although staying in as a one-horse town on the way to the start tomorrow in um well we're back in the valencian community tomorrow and i have fears serious fears about not being able to get much in the way of dinner tonight so um i talked about 
the España vacía, empty Spain. I feel there might be another empty stomach for me tonight, unfortunately. Lionel. Oh, what? dear. Yes, pretty grim, pretty grim. Lionel, what about tomorrow's stage, please? Well, uh, tomorrow's stage is stage seven. It's going to Oliva. Look, it's the Matt White stage, isn't it? That's where he has made his home. Second longest stage of the race. It's 201 kilometers. It's basically downhill all the way to the coast just south of Valencia and then a right hand turn and very flat along the coast to the finish almost certainly going to be a sprint finish but uh, early weather reports are that there could be cross headwinds so it might be quite a tricky run in I guess it's the paella stage isn't it you mentioned there Castellon that's a real kind of fixture on the Vueltas that I've done it's it feels like the Spanish Po to me a bit a bit sort of mm of a place uh, but surely you'll be able to get some paella yeah, tomorrow yeah no? I mean we had we had some a couple of nights ago we tried to get some last night we're told that there was no paella to be had at dinner time it was only available at lunch time which is very disappointing um, but yes tomorrow I think we're moving slightly south of paella country um, but w- there will probably be some available but of course look Matt White has, thro- has promised to throw open the doors of his thinker um, in the uh, on in the hills overlooking Oliva, so we'll probably be dining and probably having a multi-course banquet at Matt White's gaff tomorrow night. So look forward um, very much to that, Lionel. Lionel, I think that's about. And I imagine, I imagine it will be an, an Aussie celebration. A rider that Matt White will know well after he rode for uh, what is now the Jayco team. Uh, Caden Groves looking for his hat trick. Wouldn't could, bet against him at this could stage. Could indeed be. Could indeed be. Um, Lionel, I think that's about as much as we've got time for this evening. Uh, no Fran Reyes tonight. I did see Fran um, sort of staggering around the mountain top, looking wistfully out into the middle distance. Um, he, I know he spoke to Michael Storer, who was pretty instrumental in Lenny Martinez getting the red jersey this evening. But we'll probably have Fran back on tomorrow for some wistful gazing and um, one thing we didn't have yesterday but i think we'll close with today is the moderately popular ritmo de la vuelta uh, moderately popular daniel I, I think you're underselling it i mean this just makes me think that there ought to be some kind of uh, double tape uh, you know c90 cassette of uh, now that's what i call ritmo de la vuelta uh, available being advertised on kind of pay TV in the 1980s. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some kind of, some kind of, something to go down to our price to buy. Yeah, it's on got that tape. kind of vibe about it. Um, Lionel, just before we go yes. to the music, Daniel, very quickly, the biggest news of today, which I didn't mention, is that my wine, the uh, Vuelta case, has arrived from Divine Cellars. Very much looking forward to diving into that. I went for the the bonus case with the the slight upgrade. So uh, yeah delighted to say that has arrived from our good friends at divine sellers anyone who wants to buy the welter case can do so at divinesellers.com lionel can't remember whether you're back tomorrow uh, i think you might be no no, no back not. for the next mountainy stage on sunday having a, another couple of days off and more rest days on this welter than uh, well in the early years of the tour de france where they used to do a stage every three or four days it's quite nice We'll see you, hear from you, then look forward to it. El ritmo de la vuelta. The rhythm of the vuelta. 
This is El Ritmo de la Vuelta, in which we wind down the window and pollute the airwaves with dubious Latin beats from the Vuelta a España's back catalogue of official anthems. de la Vuelta tonight celebrates the 1990 Vuelta a España and one of my favourite Spanish artists, the Asturian glam rocker Tino Casal, whose very fetching statue we came across last year in his native Oviedo, one of a collection of interesting statues in that town, incidentally, including Woody Allen and Samuel Sanchez, remember him? We also told you last year about Casal's official song of the 1984 Vuelta Panico en el Eden, and indeed his tragic death in a car accident in Madrid in 1991. A few months prior to that, his Oro Negro, or Black Gold, had provided the backing track to a Vuelta a España, which began in Benicassim, just up the road from here, and nowadays home to probably Spain's most famous music festival. I should also say this is another one of these Vueltas, or this was another one of these Vueltas, where a couple of different official songs are listed depending on the source the other one i've seen mentioned for 1990 being the perils of tourism by man jumping i've gone with oro negro because that's what it says on the website the spanish national broadcaster and also because as already stated i'm a bit of a tino casal stan as for the cycling well it looked like being a fruitful addition for homegrown riders with defending champion perico delgado the favorite and his young bonesto teammate miguel indurain Big Mig, we mentioned Little Mig earlier in the episode. Among the favourites for overall victory, neither of that pair would prevail though. And indeed it was an Italian, Marco Giovanetti, who latched onto a seemingly innocuous break in the first week in in Andalusia to gain four minutes. And he also profited from Banesto and Onfe's mutual fixation. The 1990 Vuelta indeed being the first in a long-running series of battles between those two teams. Giovanetti, a solid and consistent but workmanlike all-rounder, would take the sole grand tour of his career by 1 minute and 28 seconds from Perico Delgado. That was El Ritmo de la Vuelta and I'll be back tomorrow. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib and Lionel Burney.